0: Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the US, and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick.
1: Medicine has been progressive on many fronts, using science to study disease, identifying causative factors, organisms or physiology, and developing solutions. But there has been some outliers in this process, and none more so than the area called mental health. The origin of the word mental derives from the Latin mentalis, meaning mind, but has been used to describe a host of issues associated with behaviour, sometimes in derogatory ways. The term mental health is variably used to describe a person's physiological, emotional and social well-being, but has long been associated with a wide range of disease states, many of which present in different forms and severity with distinct and unique behaviours, which can manifest in different ways depending on the individual. For example, schizophrenia encompasses a broad range of symptoms linked to thoughts, emotions and individual perceptions and leaves people inhabiting a world that is disconnected from reality and filled with fantasy and delusions. This gets grouped together with anxiety and sadness and even depression. Side note, depression is a very specific clinical diagnosis of a clinical disorder. Sadness is an emotion most of us will experience many times in our lives, but does not equal or equate to depression. The space, science, and area of medicine are confusing, and our understanding is still very rudimentary. We lack the tools to visualize the brain and its function, and struggle to comprehend how this complex organ works, let alone explain what's happening when it doesn't. With this backdrop, It's no surprise that society has struggled to handle individuals who are suffering from a mental health disease. Perhaps not a disease we understand in the traditional sense of a microorganism and its infection of our body or the failure of an organ that produces insulin, but a disease nonetheless. Our lack of understanding has led to a lot of stigmas associated with people who variously suffer mild, moderate and sometimes severe debilitating forms of a disease that prevents normal functioning in our world. We have seen increasing acceptance and awareness by employers of mental health as a disease, but the solutions available and access and utilisation of them remain pretty limited. Join me on Healthcare Upside Down, as I talk with Jay Spence, the Chief Strategy Officer for Uprise Health. Hi Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you have a survey that you've just carried out that uh, gives us a little bit of insight into uh, the, the healthcare space. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, lots of interesting findings. But one of the ones that really stuck out to me was the number of HR individuals who were looking at changing their broker. So 54% of those who were surveyed were looking to, were very likely to change their broker within the next year. So when we dug into that a little bit further, we were looking at some of the reasons why they were talking about that, specifically that the highest or most endorsed reason was that 46% of them were saying that they were looking for better product offerings. And then when we dug in a little bit further after that, part of the reason for this is that they felt as though they weren't getting enough proactive conversation from their broker about some of these offerings. We're a mental health technology company, so we were specifically looking into what those conversations look like around mental health. And it, it's, it's I think, obviously hard to say, like, what, what's causing this overall, but it looks as though part of this trend might be about um, HR staff needing to have more support and to be more informed about different types of options and different types of products. And in the mental health space in particular, I think that there is... Um, a group of individuals who want to be able to put new mental health technology into their workplaces, but are not really sure what these technologies are sometimes and especially which ones are effective and which ones are ineffective. And they need the brokers to be able to help have that conversation with them.
1: You you know, it's interesting you you talk about it and I'm not sure I can, aside from cable companies, I don't know of any other companies that would have such a low um rating from a you know net promoter score which is uh, how i interpret that very low satisfaction they're looking for alternatives and then on top of that you're talking about mental health which is vastly more um in the news there's much more interest and focus but we only have to go back a short period of time when people would pay lip service to it but there was very little attention to that how do we start to fix this at this point? I mean, it's been around for a long time. We've got solutions, but we're not giving people access to it.
2: Well, one of the findings in the survey was that about one in three companies don't have any mental health solution that's been installed. And to be fair, I think that part of the reason for that is, is that um, mental health solutions in particular have really been able to skate past for a long time on not being able to really demonstrate return on investment or value on investment. And I think that the reason why it's been difficult for a mental health company to show that is it's different to, say, a diabetes program where you can really start to point to a very clear metric of pounds lost in weight or something like this. But when it comes to mental health, it's a lot trickier to say, what is the improvement in somebody and even when we're talking about um, some of the metrics that we use in academic research, so you talk about remission rates. Now, um, you know, I, I don't know whether I fully understand what a remission rate is when I'm reading a paper, let alone somebody who's a broker or someone who's got no training in, in mental health. So pounds lost is easy to get, but what does it mean when somebody's improving in terms of their mental health? And what does that really translate into in terms of the effects on some of the metrics that we might be assuming are affected here? changes in absenteeism, changes in presenteeism and productivity, what I think until we can have a really clear demonstrable value in the effectiveness of these programs, both in their clinical outcomes and in their utilisation, that's the point where I feel as though it's a little bit, um, you know, there's less excuses at that point for somebody to be able to say, well, it's not worth implementing because we've got that data. The thing is, is we do have that data today, I think that it's just not being kind of communicated and translated in a way that it makes it very clear. Um, I, I think the example that comes to mind was I had to go in and have a conversation with KPMG about return on investment. And I could see all of their um, you know, eyes rolling and them having a laugh about the psychologist trying to tell them about accounting. And that's kind of where it's up to. It's I think we haven't quite, we we have done these studies to demonstrate return on investment, but it's in practice, it's still sometimes difficult to show it.
1: So I, I, I think what I heard you talk about was some specific hard numbers in there in terms of measurement. So absenteeism is something that we can measure, we can comprehend. Although as I think about those numbers, there could be many contributory causes. It might not just be you know, narrow down to mental health or those challenges, and how do you tie that back? But it sounds like you've got another, a, another collection of perhaps softer metrics that can be applied. How do we go about connecting the dots so that we can demonstrate that to the satisfaction of, you know, what is essentially a, a numbers-driven world of business that says, I, I need to see a return on this investment?
2: So there's a growing body of research where you might give multiple surveys to an individual that, and, and kind of almost tie it to one kind of leading survey. So, so let's say you've got one measure that's measuring well-being broadly. And let's say I'm measuring that out of 100. Now, I, in my research survey, I measure all of the other things. And so I measure absenteeism changes, productivity changes, changes in... Um, their working relationships, their perceived support by their manager. There's a great um, scale called psychological capital, which is even linked to share price growth. But I can't give every single one of those surveys in a day-to-day employee assistance program because no one's going to get past my initial survey. So this is the problem with demonstrating value in real world is you can't ask many questions. People aren't going to go through that so what's what's building in the background of these research studies where we've got the seven measures of value or eight whatever it is and then we've got this one measure about well-being now in the real world setting you just want to ask those that one well-being measure and if you get a well-being measure say of 80 and above then you can point back to the study and say Hey, we know for people who get 80 and above that's likely that we're getting savings and absentees and presentees and changes in your share price all of this but i think those are the ways in which we can say here's the body of research here's what we're saying has been done in, an, in a peer-reviewed way to say that this is a bona fide result and return on investment here's the same measure that we use in order to be able to inform that. and so this is our benchmarking questionnaire we're not going to ask all the rest of the questionnaires and then this is what you could we could estimate that you are getting in terms of your return on investment.
1: I I think that's really elegant to to sort of link those and find that you you know, in this case, I think you're talking about potentially a single survey instrument, you know, that's very easy. And I'm I'm sure that resonates with people when you talk about. Accessing or capturing data. If you can't do it passively and it requires extra effort, then you know there's a big decline in terms of frequency if you ask for it too often and so forth. So mm-hmm. given that we can demonstrate that connection between the 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 tools and the available treatments and opportunities, how do we start to then bring that in? I mean, you talked about it, one-third. I mean, that's just a, a jaw-dropping number when you consider how bad things really have been i mean let's let's be frank the pandemic um, you, you know turned everybody's life upside down no matter where you were what you were doing and obviously disproportionately now we've got the tail of this that's having impacts we've got some additional pressures we've got huge negative winds blowing at these organizations with all of these problems this has to be a problem that should be front and center, but I don't feel like it is. How do we change that perspective?
2: I think it's, in some ways, it's always been the the stigma problem. And I think that stigma, the good thing about this is that the stigma um, conversation has changed so much and so rapidly. And I think the gains that we've made around this and night and day before the pandemic, I had conversations where I was going in and talking to employers and the one that really struck out to me most of all was this HR um, leader who was talking to me about her own mental health. And in the conversation, she was literally listing off all of the criteria for a major depressive episode that she was experiencing at the time that I was talking to. So she's got low mood. She's feeling guilty about her relationship with her partner and with her kids. She even kind of talks about how she's teary constantly and she's, because I'm a, my background's I'm a clinical psychologist, so I've got that unusual power, people confess of their symptoms, um, so anyway, we're having this conversation about this her her experience of her own mental health, and then at the end of that conversation, as we're transitioning over to my pitch for the mental health solution, she turns around and says, um, oh, "There's no one at this company that has any mental health problems. I've never seen anyone with a mental illness." <laughs> In my mind, I'm thinking, "You just told me about your one," but. Um... <laughs> So, I, anyways, that was this was pre-pandemic. This was about 2000. And, um, when would that have been? 2017. And and nowadays, you can go in and have that same conversation, and you've got a, a much more sophisticated conversation about prevalence rates. They know what's happening in their um, the, the medications that their employees are taking and what those medications are and what they need to pay attention to in terms of trends. It's completely different. But I still think that that when it really comes down to it, if if I take a sample of one just my own stress and not very long ago i was going through a period of stress in and it took my wife to constantly say like why don't you go back to your coach there's a coach that i work with he's a psychologist as well it's kind of like seeing a therapist and she and i said no no no, i'm fine i'm totally fine i don't i don't need anything i'm okay and then it wasn't until i actually said look you you've bought you've drunk the kool-aid on this you believe in mental health call out your coach and get on top of it and as soon as i had the first call I recognised how much stress I'd been holding on to, was able to let that go within the space of two phone calls and then feel like I was getting back on track. And when I was thinking about it afterwards, I was thinking, why did it take me so long to reach out? And I thought it's a combination of my own resilience and I think that resilience, our resilience tells us we're okay, we can keep going and so we minimise the problems that we're in. That's part of this issue. The second part of it is there's always some shame factor about needing to recognise a problem. And so I must have had to kind of go through that in some way of saying, okay, there's something going on here and I need to go and talk to somebody about it. And so I think that the next stage for that's, um, the responsibility of the organisation, if they're taking saying they're taking responsibility for mental health, is to realise that they're going to need to influence the conversation about stigma to start to deal with this second part it used to be that mental illness is something that's about schizophrenia. It happens to someone on a street corner. It's over there. It's not me. Now everyone knows it's in the workplace, but then now the conversation is more about saying, how do I continue to destigmatize? Not just like here's counseling, here's EAP, go and see the counselor, but an ongoing conversation is like, what is stigma now? Like when, when are you putting your hand up? Like when are you the workforce? What do, most of the modern day employee assistance programs have got lots of offerings they might have coaching if you don't want to go in and do heavy mental health work they've got counseling for people who need things like that and then you've obviously got treatment under your health plan and so it's helping people to understand what are your options you don't have to go and confess your childhood to a counselor if you don't want to you can go and do something that's a lighter touch there's a lot more to go and I think that this is the, the the challenging part for HR is they need to be an expert in so many things. And one of the things they need to be be an expert in and need the support of their broker is how do you develop a really strong communication campaign about stigma, not just as a superficial level of like, hey, we're all friends with mental health now, but more about like, what's the real reason why you don't go and get support because we know that it works.
1: You you know, you bring up some really personal and and relevant points to to the, the challenge here. And, you know, the first one that, strikes me very hard is that whole stigma. In fact, I I just read a piece that talked about mental health in physicians and the stigma associated with that and the challenge of licensure and unacceptability even to this day. And, you know, we know we see all of these problems. But I think even more compelling is the fact that you as a professional with a deep understanding in this space was unable, at least without help, to yeah. step over the line seeking that help and what you're essentially saying is that we are looking to corporate organizations in hr and i have to believe that those folks are not trained or don't have those uh, insights we've got to find better ways of helping them navigate this so that not only do they deliver the services but also help people access them because you can provide them, but if nobody's actually accessing them, is that mm-hmm. vested in technology? Is there an element that we can bring to bear that will start to deliver this, or maybe destigmatize it? Do you think?
2: Yeah. What What I've seen in the time that I've been working in the industry is the emergence of these digital tools as a, as a gateway. And originally, what we saw with them is like different groups of people adopting them that didn't used to. So. Men are traditionally very hard to reach, especially certain ages and demographics, men, and then digital technology has allowed them to feel more comfortable to come in and maybe start a conversation with a chat bot and then move to higher levels of care. So the way that most kind of modern mental health technology companies work or digital EAPs work is that there's a digital platform that essentially forms, performs a couple of key functions. The first function is there's usually some type of assessment and triage mechanism in there. So a short questionnaire that has an algorithm within it and it says, okay, are you um, somebody that is male and probably doesn't want to get, you know, thrown over the wall and jump in the deep end with a therapist Um, or, and you may want to, and then it might recommend starting through a digital pathway. Then you might have individuals who have got moderate levels of stress, um, probably don't need to go and see a counsellor. They might be ideal for coaching. And then you've got people who are starting to see emerging or even diagnosable mental health issues, and, and they're obviously needing to do higher intensity treatments like counselling. So you've got assessment, triage, and then you've got the services that are being plugged into the platforms as well. So the platform also then delivers um the coaching appointments and the video scheduling and all of those types of things and then there's another layer which is often coming through a lot of modern mental health treatment platforms as well which is care navigation sometimes they're called health advocates they've got different names but essentially that's recognizing that you can have a fantastic um, clinic I always think about these as virtual clinics in the same way as you would enter a hospital you think about walking into a hospital, you know, often you don't even know who am I supposed to see? What's that person going to talk to me about? Where am I supposed to go next? Which room am I supposed to be in? Care navigators are this layer, which is about um, usually somebody who's essentially forming like a cheerleader function. Here's where you go. This is what you're going to do. You're doing great. Now here's the next step. Because mental health is multi-determined. We don't just kind of say, you know, go and see a counsellor every time anymore. Typically it's about saying, Okay, what's causing your mental health challenges? Okay, it's a combination of financial stress, so you need a financial coach, um, or this person might be needing to do something which is around um, nutrition exercise, and then you combine that with some type of psychological intervention as well.
1: So would it be a stretch if I, we were to suggest that the interaction with these tool sets be they digital and one of the things that i learned very early on is that people quite often are more honest with technology than they are with the individual even when they know that it will end up with a real conversation but i i mean in in the us we have anybody that's in healthcare has gone through mandatory HIPAA training should we be having mandatory interactions that push people maybe not through an assessment but at least through some kind of interaction that allows people to maybe make that initial step that's the biggest challenge do you think?
2: I mean I I have to call out my own bias on this like I think that's a great idea (laughs) but I I don't know whether everyone thinks that's a great idea. I think you think about a bell curve right like you've got people who are completely bought in on mental health and understand it, then you've got the bulk of the population, which probably, you know, has, you know, they, they see it as being advantageous, but maybe they're missing a lot of the psychological literacy to really understand it. And then you've got the talent, people that never want to get involved in any, any, and it just sounds like homeopathy or something, you know, that they're not, they don't want to get apologies to those of you who are, I don't want to insult that, but that I think that what we would be looking at with this is, it needs to have a destigmatization campaign first. And that's probably the really key thing. It's about looking at the maturity of the organization and understanding where it's at. Like if you've got a highly mature organization and they really get this, and you've been, their leadership's been walking the walk and talking the talk and doing all the right things to make the environment psychologically safe, and you put this questionnaire in, it's probably going to work really well. But if you're at the start of that maturity conversation and you've got a workforce that's um, not particularly psychologically minded and you give them one of these, I think they're going to laugh at you. So I, I think it's about making that call on where are we up to? How do we develop the psychological maturity? How do we de And then how do we assess based off these tools?
1: Fantastic. I think some great insights and and pathways for organizations to think through this with a a clear sort of strategic direction, maybe not quite at the extreme that I'm at, but I think, um, you know, some uh, good steps towards that progress, because we're going to need it. Um, We didn't get to talk about it, but, you know, mental health dings are cumulative and we're seeing more and more accumulation and that can lead to actual mental illness. Uh, mm. Jay, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. The impact of mental health is cumulative on our bodies and our brains and the pandemic was just the latest in a long list of stresses to our world that are in urgent need of addressing. The process starts with destigmatization of mental health as a separate problem. If an individual is diagnosed with cancer, support is universal, but a diagnosis of any mental condition does not engender the same emotions. Assessing your organization's maturity will guide the best pathway to creating a psychologically safe environment that empowers your team to raise their hand and access resources. Your better pill to swallow is to create a psychologically supportive organization that is built on a foundation of trust and support at all levels. It's not just about providing access to mental health tools and capabilities that have demonstrable ROIs, but requires the destigmatization of the mental health problems, empowering everyone to step over the threshold and actually use the resources that everyone should be providing as part of their total wellness and healthcare package. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as
0: one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown, and join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.